Welcome back. I'm Peter Wood, and I'm the author of Mud Between Your Toes, a Rhodesian farm, which is a memoir about my life growing up in Zimbabwe, or formerly Rhodesia, in the 1960s and 70s. This is a podcast about family, independence, loss, and above all, identity. Welcome back to part three on my chapter about my school days. This episode is called War and Peace. It was hard to forget that there was a war going on. During an exceptionally cold midwinter on the 6th of August, 1977, several bombs rocked Salisbury, killing scores of innocent people. The first went off at Woolworths, the second at a train station, and the third in the parkade near the town centre. These bombs became a fact of life for the next year or so. On one notorious day, seven postbox bombs exploded across the town, culminating in the biggest bang of all on the 12th of December 1978, when the main fuel tank that supplied the city with petrol was blown up. It darkened the sky with an Armageddon-like noxious black smoke for several days. The thundering of the explosions could be heard across the cricket and rugby fields, It may well have been a coincidence, but with the war finally reaching the city, the bullying began in earnest. I don't know, violence begets violence. Boys needed to vent their anger. Testosterone levels rose. Young lads, normally quiet and soft-spoken, became aggressive. The daily roll call of deaths on television or at the Sunday chapel service became routine. My diary, Monday, 8th of August, 1977. Another bomb went off at a train station last night. No one was killed. Alan fucked up James Lazelle and called him spoofless or spineless. He kicked James in the balls and drew blood everywhere while James just had to stand there and take it like a man. Not like Alan, who's a coward. I just don't understand that person. He's insane. Tuesday, 9th of August, 1977. Last night was the worst night I've ever had at the school. I was woken up by Heron and taken to the washrooms. There I got fucked up and rarely bawled at by the seniors for an absolutely incredibly unknown reason, for being spineless and stroppy and not running for the phone, etc., etc. They said I take advantage of Alan because he goes out with my sister, and they said I, I just go to the rugby to watch Duncan play and not the school, even though I don't know why that's so wrong. Because of what they said, I got the impression that Alan was the cause. And this, coming from a man who beats me every day. Well, you can take your favoritism for all I care. Some Form 4s were also fucked up, and the next day, some Form 2s. It was really shit. 
Looking back, it's amazing that not once did a career officer ever sit me down and ask what I wanted. Not once did a social worker take me aside and inquire about who I was, what I needed, was I bullied, sex, sexuality, issues at home. You know, you have to bear in mind a war was raging and friends were being killed. Kids were in torment. Weekly evacuation drills onto the rugby fields created a state of intense fear. Children disappeared from our classrooms after the holidays, killed in attacks on their homesteads. I went to three funerals in one day as a teenager, all of whom were either friends or fellow pupils killed in separate incidents. Yet not one teacher took me aside and asked if I was okay. Boarding school also produced an amorousness minus the eroticism. Now, John Arton Powell was one of the good guys. Naughty, but good, if that makes any sense. He was the kind of chap who believed that if you didn't have anything nice to say about a person, it's better to say nothing at all. When he did have an opinion, you sat up and listened. When Art and Powell came onto my side of the room, I knew the tables might turn. Art and Powell was a cheeky bugger, and to get him on side was vital to my survival. He was also my greatest rival at cross-country. No other chap my age at school equaled me at long distance. He and I competed against each other year after year. Some days I beat him, and others he pipped me to the post. Mostly, though, he beat me. This friendly rivalry grew to a crescendo in March 1977 when my fame dive-bombed at the Interhouse Cross Country. I was the star of Salou House. Arton Powell was the star of Rhodes House. Parents had come from miles away. A feeling of anxiety and excitement rippled through the hostel. Colourful bunting had been hung up on poles along the fields. Groups of teachers and parents huddled and chatted amicably about how good their child was and how such and such was going to thrash your kid in the race. My parents behaved humbly by simply smiling, knowing that their son was in fact a sure winner. My performance all term had been nothing less than spectacular and I was expected to come first, so they had good reason. All morning, people would approach me, a look of pride and reverence in their eyes. They would slap me on the back and give me a friendly squeeze around the shoulders or shake my hand in encouragement. I was the man that day. And this was the highlight of my athletic career. This was it. It was a Monday. And Mondays always meant malaria tablets. Absent-mindedly, I took two of the quinine pills instead of one. A disaster. Well, initially, things went well. Arton Powell and I pacing each other at the head of the pack. Nothing was going to beat us that day. We were invincible. 
The shouting from supporters, the roar of the crowd, the fame was going to my head. On the first lap, I hurdled the gateposts with ease, flew across the water jump, sprinted through the flats, and set the pace for the entire team. But as the poison in the malaria tablets began to take effect, my legs got heavier, my breath shorter. Art and Powell began to pull ahead. Other competitors passed me, some briefly glancing back in surprise. They'd never beaten me before, and now Wood was falling back in spectacular fashion. No amount of coaxing or cajoling would help. I eventually crossed the line in 20th place and was greeted by an extremely angry team. Bad luck, old boy. Don't worry, it couldn't be helped. Oh, well, you did your best. All I can say is that Art and Powell also bummed that day and came in somewhere in the teens, and he had no quinine to blame it on. I was the shame of the hostel, and no doubt my family too, for Art and Powell and me... Our days of hero status and the cross-country team were over. Yet, this rivalry soon turned into an object of my affectation. Without warning, I found that I was falling in love with my long-time opponent. A terribly confusing, love-struck teenage crush with all its complexities and angst. Of course, I never told anyone, least of all him. That would have been the death of me. Even my diaries of this period were written in some stupid bloody code for fear of being found out. 3.4.2-4.1213, etc., etc. The first line said, It's terrible, I know, but I love Arton Powell. Ugh. Oh was sad. Page after page, hardly rocket science for Bletchley Park, but it took me forever to decode that wretched diary, and the results were, well, they were eye-wateringly pathetic. Poor Arton Powell. I hope to God he never had an inkling, and I apologize here and now. It would have killed him. Well, it would have killed me too. Most kids face boyhood crushes, but mine were deeper, and my frustration was extreme. I blush when translating some of the pages. Decoded, the messages are, well, they're completely normal for a growing lad, I think. Monday, 26th of March, 1979. I have said nothing like this before. But I want to sleep with him. I absolutely love him. I know it's absurd. Well, I expect my love was a bit more hormonal than cerebral. The diary again. I love him because he has gripping muscles, good-looking, manly, big, good sense of humour, fit, etc. Well, I do like the big part. At least I had my priorities right. I believe I try to justify myself by saying, I don't want to have a complete sexual relationship, but for someone to care for and love at night. Although I think those soppy lines were probably reserved for anyone who managed 
to get hold of my diary and decipher my code. My real feelings were somewhat more feral. Sadly, none of this was ever reciprocated. If anything, it was always going to end in tears. Tuesday, 27th of March, 1979. When he is alone, he says hello in a real nice way. But when others are around, he's lousy. There was a plethora of others, including teachers I absolutely ached to hold, to be held by, to be comforted by. But their names and faces have faded into the mists of time, snatches of memory. I was once accosted in a car by an elderly professor from the University of Rhodesia. I'd been hitchhiking along 2nd Street Extension when this silver-haired, pink-skinned man picked me up. I watched, mesmerized, as his liver-spotted hand reached furtively across the gear stick and landed on my knee. Would you care to come back to the university with me, young man, he asked, stroking my leg and glancing at me sideways with watery eyes. It was incredible. A frisson of excitement rushed through me. No man, or woman, come to think of it, had ever made a pass at me. And despite the age gap, I almost consented. But I had younger prey on my mind. I asked politely and slightly indignantly to be dropped off on the verge. What did he see in me that instigated this incident? Had I given off a signal, or was he simply a man who preyed upon young boys? I felt both anger and sadness. Is this it? Is this what becomes of homosexual people, of morphs, of queers? <sighs> it, it, it just terrified me. Not so much, funnily enough, the homo part, at the age part. I was young, and like all young men, I was an ageist, yet this incident, well, it puzzled me. I began to understand slowly that the person you imagine yourself to be is nothing like the person you imagined him to be. In abject desperation to hide my Greek feelings, I felt compelled to find a girlfriend. I might have succeeded had I not been quite so ham-handled. I do feel sorry for some of those girls. God, the poor things had to put up with my fumbling hands and lacquered knowledge. A hard squeeze of a breast was about as far as it went with eroticism. Eros would have blanched. Even the term get off with, or worse, to clamp, was hardly inspiring. I got off with so-and-so, I had a, a clamp with so-and-so, might induce a scramble around one's desk to hear all the gory details. My punk rocker cousin, Madeleine, had a friend called Beverly. I adored Bev, and I don't think it was any misguided attempt to be straight. I truly adored her, her style her sexiness, her total lack of respect for school. Bev and Madeleine initiated me into the whole English music scene. It was delicious and extreme and irreverent, and it went against the norm.
through those two girls, I learned about the Boomtown Rats and Bow Wow Wow. I struggled to understand the Jam and Joy Division, and I fell on my sword over the Sex Pistols and the Stranglers, two groups spoken off in hushed, if not disgusted tones, in a country still celebrating David Essex and Elaine Page. Madeleine and Bev hung out with the Dragons, who frequented Spaniard's T-Bone Disco. The Dragons were Rhodesia's answer to the Hell's Angels, and they rolled around the place like outlaws with their long hair, tortured hearts, wings, skulls and leathers with spikes and chrome and the ubiquitous tattoos and very loud bikes. It was hardly punk, but it was the next best thing. And there I was trying my best to blend in. My determination to get Bev into bed and my sycophantic efforts to ingratiate myself with her biker friends eventually led to me designing their gang logo, a motorbike with fangs, wings, snake's tail and a forked tongue. Not my style, I might add, but certainly the highlight of my commercial art career, which began at 11 years old when I won the Air Rhodesia poster competition. Flying is our business. We will make it your pleasure. I like to believe that there are men and women out there with winged monsters inked onto their boobs. Try as I might, my heterosexual mating game was simply not up to par. Harleys and Yamahas won the day. Beverly attempted to fob me off on her other friends, but I consistently sprang back in a cloud of Gila Roche, stovepipes, and a paper-look jacket crackling with static electricity. Without a doubt, Bev knew me far better than I knew myself. On Sundays, we had to be back at school at 6 p.m. roll call. Wood? See me after supper. Groan. As soon as chapel was over and I'd taken my daily thrashing, I'd be up through the hole in a ceiling above the toilets to join the smokers. This had been the smoking room for as far back as anyone could remember. Filthy and redolent of years and years of tobacco smoke, it was a wonder that the ceiling had never collapsed in on itself. The floor was thick with old empty packets, many going back to a time before sanctions. Dusty cartons with names no longer available in the stores. Layer upon layer, almost a foot deep, it was like an archaeological dig of fag ends, with each layer illustrating a different era. We loved the fact that here we were, puffing away, only feet away from the heads of those twatty prefects. There were always one or two reprobates sitting up in the gloom, dragging on a B&H, undeterred by the fact that, should we be caught, we would be expelled. Occasionally, on beautiful evenings, we would lug a foam mattress up to the roof and lie out gazing at the Milky Way and the Southern Cross, quite oblivious to the fatal drop just inches away. 
During those years at Prince Edward, the amount of alcohol consumed was alarming, even by today's binge-drinking standards. I'm left in awe of our intrepid ways of bunking out, getting utterly smashed, and back at school the next day. It appears that no adults took control. Clearly, those prefects were absolutely clueless. So, inevitably, my truancy... Smoking, well, tobacco, I hasten to add. Lack of concentration in ghastly subjects such as physics, chem, and maths. Not to mention the demise of my cross-country career. All led me down the grey gravel path to Headmaster Raymond Suttle's office, where he sat me down and quietly, if not firmly, advised me that my days were over at Prince Edward School. Are you aware that there are 500 black kids out there clamoring to get into the school? And did you not think another year at school is simply a waste of time for me, for the teachers, and indeed for you? And are you aware that doing A-level arts or English literature will not get you anywhere in life? We well, had a point, I suppose. Let us be perfectly frank, Mr. Wood. Think long and hard about what I've just told you. You are no longer wanted here at Prince Edward's school. I thought hard, but not long. I departed immediately. It was February. I had successfully completed my matriculation the previous term and was into my first two weeks of the A-level year. To be honest, I was rather flattered that he even knew who I was. In the past five years, I had not said one word to the man, never been into his office, never been congratulated for my excellent running. Hell, I'd never even been reprimanded by the man. His wife knew me better than he did. She was in charge of the costumes for the Pirates of Penzance and had many a conversation over the Singer sewing machine with my grandmother. And now, here he was defining my life and paving the way to a very uncertain future. With the stroke of a pen, I was out, just 17 years old. No testimonial to prove my existence over the past few years, no turning back. That day, my friend Spike and I walked down to the recruitment office and immediately enrolled in the army. Spike, who had a future, who was actually bright and was clever enough to pass his A-levels, was there, willing to join the army with me to throw it all away. I, of course, had little to lose. He was a loyal friend, that boy. I had no choice. My childhood ended that day. Okay, fuck it. My childhood probably ended way before that. But there was still a war raging, and if academia did not need me, then maybe the military did. Wisely, Spike walked away, back to school. I was in a state of shock. Anti-establishment I may have been, but I was, by any other standard, still a good kid. Well, I thought I was. My closely kept secret was, to my knowledge, still a secret. From henceforth, it would all be about survival, I'd been cut adrift. I was being weaned earlier than the rest of the pups, 
and like a runt sucking the hind tit, I was thrown to the lions. And in the spirit of the times, I took it on the chin. I laughed. I rejoiced. I brazenly smoked a pack of Madison in front of the prefects. I had a castle lager with my mates. Fuck them, I shouted from the stands. I'm joining the army. I'll show those pricks. I adored the limelight momentarily. The sudden adoration of my peers as they saw me in a different light for the first time. Yet, beneath the surface, I was in a total fucking panic. The country may have been going through change according to the suits and parliament, but the war was still full on. The euphoria drained from me. I finally understood that I had made a momentous decision that would change my life forever. All I could think was, at last, my dad will understand. Despite my nerves, I felt stronger than I had ever felt in my life. I felt in control at last. My life was mine and mine alone. Those bullies at school who had made my life hell, they were already a distant memory. I was not doing this for them, and they played no part in my future. Prior to my dismissal from school on the 27th of February 1980, the first black boy in the history of Prince Edward became a boarder at Salou House. My diary. Old Kingsley Mbeyer has arrived at the hostel. I wonder what he's like. Kingsley Mbeyer, what a great name. The final entry in my diary reads, That Kingsley bloke seems okay. He's not being entirely ignored, which is the main thing. With Kingsley came the relaxation of rules, Wart's retirement, the removal of initiation for youngsters, and the end of an error. As for Mbeya, he certainly seemed to have fared better than I. Well, that's about it. Thank you so much for listening to me, and remember... You can tune into my new episodes of Mud Between Your Toes via iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Blueberry, and Pocket Casts. Don't forget, you can always buy a copy of my book on both Amazon and Kindle. And I also welcome comments by email on mudbetweenyourtoes at gmail.com. If you want to get involved and you have a good story to tell about those years in Rhodesia, and if you're brave enough to be interviewed for mud between your toes, feel free to write to me. Goodbye.